Welcome, my whizzes. I am back with another rapid-fire Q&A episode for this week's Food Biz Whiz show. And I gotta say, I love these episodes. I love being able to ask my audience over Instagram and in our Food Biz Whiz Facebook group what you guys need support on right now and answer them in a super fast, off-the-cuff totally not scripted style. So thank you guys for submitting your questions. Today, we're going to talk about inclusion and equity in the food industry, sell sheets, shelf life, rolling out new packaging, what you can do now that you can't demo in store, negotiating payment terms, and what to do when a buyer says no. Let's jump right in. You're listening to Food Biz Whiz, the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Allie Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going. This episode is sponsored by Retail Ready, my online course for emerging food brands who are looking to grow their wholesale business. I've been teaching Retail Ready for three years, and I've had over 150 brands enroll in the course. Through videos and workbooks and checklists and templates and live coaching calls with me, plus 24-7 access to me and my team in our private online group, Retail Ready has all the tools that you need to increase your sales through wholesale accounts, whether that's in traditional brick-and-mortar outlets or through e-commerce platforms. I'd love to see you join us when the course opens again. So jump on the wait list to be the first to know when I welcome new students. You can find that wait list in today's show notes or at foodbizwiz.com under the heading Retail Ready. All right, here we go. So I am recording this podcast in early June in the wake of George Floyd's murder and national protests around racism in America. When I asked you guys what questions I could answer about growing your food businesses, I got the usual submissions around working with buyers, branding, and pricing stuff. And then I also got this one. Allie, what are you doing to address racial inequality in the food system? And that is where I'm starting today. I got to say, this is a big question, and it's one that I'm working on and I am thinking a lot about. I didn't want to ignore this question just because it was a hard one. I didn't want to give you guys a bullet-pointed list of what I'm doing to prove that I'm working on this, but I do want to talk about it and I do want to share my perspective. Now, before I answer this, I want to give you a few lines of real talk. Over the first week of June, I did several social media posts and emails about what I was doing both personally and with my team and with my business to to address equity and inclusion for Black-owned food businesses. I got a lot of unsubscribes and unfollows and I was going to say really intense email replies about how people don't follow me and subscribe to my email list to hear my perspective on how Black Lives Matter, that they want my content on growing their food businesses, and that's it. I mean, heck, like, I I know I'm probably going to get unsubscribed from my podcast right now because of what I am saying. But before you unsubscribe, before you press pause, please just hear this next sentence 
that I read last week. And you can decide how you want to proceed, okay? It is a privilege to educate yourself about racism instead of experiencing it. How privileged is is it to be able to hit unsubscribe or unfollow and take ourselves away from the content that makes us uncomfortable? If you are inclined to do that, I would ask yourself to take a moment and ask why. Now, I I get it, right? If I, let's just say, this is going to be lighthearted for a second, but if I subscribe to a newsletter that's all about how to train my dog and all of a sudden they start sending content about how to pickle vegetables, I might decide that content is no longer relevant for me, right? I get that. But that's not what I did. But if that company, if they, that dog training company sends me a message about their company values and inclusion in the dog training industry, I am here for it, right? The dog training emails will come back. And now I know where they stand as a business. So again, before you pause or unsubscribe, I'd ask you to evaluate why that is and if you're open to changing your mind. If this conversation makes you uncomfortable, that's okay. It challenges me too, right? These conversations are not comfortable and that is why I'm having them. So to answer the submitted question, Allie, what are you doing to address racial inequity in the food industry? This is rapid fire, so I'm going to give you I'm going to give you my rapid fire answer, and I hope that's okay. So first off, I am listening to Black leaders and advocates who have spent their careers addressing this. These are the people that I can learn from, and I suggest you do too, right? Don't learn from me. <laughs> I, am, I am qualified to teach you on how to grow your packaged food business, but I am not qualified to tell you how to increase inclusion in your business. Okay, so I will link a few resources that I have found to be helpful in the show notes here. Next, I'm committed to training trainings for my team, to paying for trainings for my team and finding resources for my retail ready students. So my team and I have paid for a workshop workshop, excuse me, from Trudy LeBron, a black woman who is an equity and inclusion strategist so that we can identify and work on the way that we show up for our students and our community. We have work to do there. I am committed to using this podcast platform and our monthly industry expert calls within Retail Ready to amplify Black service providers in the industry. They exist. (laughs) I am just about to hit year, year one, one year of podcasting. So I looked back at my guest guest list to see where I stand and where I can improve, right? So I want to share this with you. I have had 25 guests on my podcast so far in my one year of podcasting. 72% of those guests have been women in the food industry. That's 18 women, 18 out of 25. And I am really proud of that, right? 24% of my guests have been people of color. That's six people out of 25 guests. I can do better here. You guys know that I am all about tracking my numbers (laughs) with my business, and I want you guys to track your numbers too. I do this so that I can measure my results. So here it is. In this next year of podcasting, in year two of podcasting, I want to have 50% of my guests be people of color so that they get the equal airtime as my white guests do. If you are down with that, 
let me know. Hit subscribe and keep on listening, okay? I can do the same with my industry expert calls for my paying students within Retail Ready, and I can make sure to highlight the Black and minority-owned food businesses students within Retail Ready as equally as my white students. So I've got to figure out how to do this, right? This is something I'm thinking about. How to do this when sharing a picture of packaging and products on shelves when it's not obvious that it's a Black-owned business, right? Like, When I share that on my social media channels, you don't know immediately if you're just looking at a beautiful picture of a a beverage, right, or a granola or something like that. So maybe it's as simple as adding a a hashtag to the post or simply writing it in the comments. I have got to figure out a system there. So again, we have work to do. Beyond that, I've created monthly standing donations to the NAACP and Campaign Zero, as well as to Black Earth Farms, so I can continue to financially support both on a national level and in my own backyard here in the Bay Area, specifically to Black food and beverage business owners, okay, Black farmers. So that's what I've got. So listening to Black voices, educating myself and my team, paying Black service providers for their work, putting measurable numbers in place for my for inclusion on my podcast and social media platforms, and standing monthly donations to organizations so that they have the financial means to continue their work as well. From there, it's also continuing to serve my students within my community, continuing to welcome students into Retail Ready, and continuing to help you guys run and grow your food businesses so that you have the financial means and that you have the platforms to make the impacts that you want as well, okay? So again, I'll have all of those resources linked in my show notes, and I hope this inspires you to think about what you can do to make long-standing, consistent changes here, okay? Now, on to a few questions that are a little bit easier for me to answer off the cuff and unscripted. All right, are you ready for it? It's going to get a little little bit more lighthearted here. So first up, <laughs> thank you. Um, we are going to talk about pricing on your sell sheet. This is an easy one. Allie, should I include pricing on my sell sheet or not? Nope, you should not. I fully believe that you're, you should have a sell sheet and you have should have a price list. And those are separate. Those are two separate documents two separate PDFs that you are sending to your potential wholesale accounts. Why is that? Well, your sell sheet you might send to a broader audience than you would want to send your price list to. You also will probably have a separate price list for your direct accounts and a separate price list for your distributor. So you want to make sure that you're keeping a price list separate so you can update it more frequently than your sell sheet. Okay, so separate, totally separate. That was an easy question. (laughs) I feel like I got a pass there. So moving along, I like this question too. So debating shelf life, this this person said, I'm debating shelf life and what is expected from a wholesale perspective? Should I compromise my quality to extend my shelf life? This is a really good question and I wanna talk about it from a couple different angles. And first off, I will say it depends on your category, right? And what that buyer expectation is from you. If you are a bakery item, if you are a chocolate truffle, if you are a coffee 
roaster, right? And you have a short shelf life, whether that's a matter of days or, you know, coffee could be seven days, 10 days, two weeks. That is okay. If you are in line with the other products in your category, if your shelf life is in line with the other products in your category, that is total, and it's short, that is totally fine, right? But if you are, if you are in a category, let's say you're in a yogurt category and the typical shelf life there is 90 days from the bigger players, right? Because they've got the, the capacity to, to have the, the production that extends the shelf life and your shelf life is seven days with your small batch granola or excuse me, small batch yogurt. That is going to be a challenge for the buyer and they're going to have to treat your product with a different set of operations than that 90 day shelf life, right? So it really depends on your category and whether or not you're in line with other products and if that buyer knows how to handle a short shelf life. So again, 90 days is great. 180 days is better. Years is the best, right? Like let's say your shelf stable sauce with years of shelf life. That's that's wonderful. <laughs> so, it depends on your category and I I want to address that should I compromise quality to extend my shelf life? And that is something that you have to answer from a values perspective with your business. What are your values? And are you comfortable compromising your quality, you know, to extend that shelf life? But first off, do you need to in the first place? And what are your values when it comes to product quality um, or ingredient sourcing or whatever that is that would that would help you extend your shelf life? Okay, I hope that helps you there. Um, you guys, as you're listening, if you if you recognize your question that I'm answering, I would love for you to give me you know, send me a DM. Let me know if I answered your question correctly or if you've got, if you need more clarification here. Okay. So one, one next question before we take a little break. So I like this one. I am about to relaunch my product line with new labels and a new bottle shape. Should I expect any pushback from wholesale accounts that still have old inventory? If so, should I offer them anything like a discount or credit towards new inventory? Can you give me tips for the transition, Allie? Yeah, I see this all the time. And the number one thing that I want to emphasize here is that it feels like a big deal for you, right? Because you have gone through a rebrand. You've probably had to source new packaging. You potentially worked with a new design team. You're working with a new, in this case, potentially a new bottle supplier, co-packer. Like It is a big deal for you to make this shift in your business. However, it's not a big deal for the buyer. <laughs> we see price changes. We see packaging changes. We see case case pack changes all the time, right? So while it feels like it might be dramatic and something that you're really nervous about rolling out to your stores, from a buyer perspective, it's not that big of a deal as long as you have clearly communicated the changes. Okay, so how do you do this? First off, you know, with your wholesale accounts, you wanna give them as much time as possible with a with a hard deadline of when the new product and packaging is going to roll out, right? So you might say, you might call and email your buyers and say, heads up, our packaging is changing 60 days from now. 
all orders placed starting on August 1st will receive the new inventory. That's all you need to do, right? You need to be clear on when the new product is rolling out and what that means for the buyer. Does it mean that there's a price change? Does it mean that there are new UPC codes? Does it mean that the shelf life is different, right? Like how does that impact the buyer? And what do they need to change in order to have a seamless transition here? And that all comes from clear communication with you ahead of time. And then finally, do I need to change, do I need to swap out inventory or do I need to buy back inventory or give them credit here? I am a firm believer that that buyer is in charge of managing their own inventory and you do, once they purchase it from you, you do not need to do anything in order to, to support them there, right? Buy a buyer or an inventory manager's duty is to manage inventory on their shelves. So if you give them enough of a heads up, and if you are a clear communicator leading up to the packaging change, they should be able to manage their inventory so it whittles down before that new product, that new line comes rolling out, right? Oftentimes you'll see this, that Again, like I'm just going to, so the person who submitted this is a sauce producer. Oftentimes you'll see, you know, two or three bottles of that old sauce of the former, former skews on the shelf with the new product lined up behind it. And that's okay, right? That buyer has managed their inventory and they are, and they are selling through the old one, just a few bottles before the new one gets gets placed on the shelf. And that's totally fine. Of course, if that buyer comes back to you and they ask you to do a swap out, that's a conversation that you can have directly with them. And if that's something that works for your business model, by all means, go ahead, say yes. You know, that's a favor that you could do for them. And you can use, you could then use that, that product for samples or whatever you need, you know, however you can still use that product to make sure that it doesn't go to waste, right? Okay, great question there. And I hope that gives you some guidance on how to relaunch your product line with new labels and a new bottle shape. Okay, we are gonna take a quick break for a sponsor and we will be right back. If you've been enjoying these episodes, imagine what it would be like to ask clarifying questions directly to me and to have my assistants working through your strategy on these topics. Well, you can. My retail-ready students have access to me live in our private online group and on our monthly coaching calls, and I would love to see you in there as well. Retail-ready enrollment opens again soon, so jump on the wait list in today's show notes or at foodbizwiz.com and save your spot. Okay, you guys, we are back. I've got three questions left and they are good ones. (laughs) We're going to talk about demoing in the time of COVID. We are going to talk about payment terms and then we are going to talk about what to do when a buyer says no to your product line. So let's talk about demos. I liked, I mean, I liked and didn't like this question that was submitted. So what, what can I do now that I can't demo in store due to COVID-19? How am I possibly going to grow my product line in 2020? Okay, so the challenge here is that it's it's harder to connect with consumers right now. That is, that is a given, right? If you relied on demos in order to get your product in people's mouths, this is a really hard time for you right now. 
Although I will say we are seeing some demos coming back. Costco just announced that they are going to, or a few weeks ago, by the time this this podcast airs, Costco announced that they are rolling out sampling again in their stores shortly. So demos are coming back just in a different capacity. Okay, so I've got a couple things for you to think about here. And the primary one is instead of this woe is me, I can't possibly grow my business this year because I can't do demos. I want you to think about that budget that you had for demos and where you can allocate that budget instead, right? So let's say that the average demo costs you about $150 to execute by the time you pay for labor and the sample cups and the product itself. I want you to ask yourself, how can you spend that $150 per demo elsewhere to grow your business. So perhaps it's another form of sampling, right? Maybe you are sending $150 worth of product, you know, after you pay for shipping, sending it to the staff and making them care packages for right now. Again, depends on your product and whether or not that's feasible for the type of product you make, but maybe you're sending it to staff and store managers. Maybe you are using that $150 to do giveaways, right? Maybe you are ramping up your social media and you are doing all sorts of giveaways, partnering with other similar brands on your social media platforms. Maybe you're finally doing influencer marketing. Last week's podcast was all about that. I'll link that in the show notes as well. I love this idea. Maybe you're finally doing paid advertising. Paid advertising can absolutely help grow your brand to an to an audience with whom you have not connected in the past. And I like to think that a demo budget, that $150, can go quite far with strategic paid advertising. And maybe, finally, maybe finally you are investing in retail ready. We actually saw this. We saw a lot of people who joined us this spring because they knew that they should spend their trade show budget elsewhere, right? So come on, come and join us, right? (laughs) So again, it is not about this woe is me. I can't grow my business. I can't demo. Like everything is on hold, but more about where is, where is this an opportunity to invest where I haven't already with my business? Okay. So think about that. Those $150 little, little chunks of change back to you and where you can invest them instead in your business. Okay. Next question. Two questions left. I told you it's going to be rapid fire. So here we go. As a startup, Allie, I would like to understand the payment terms that I should keep in mind when I start conversations with buyers. Specifically, can I put in place consignment terms? Is it acceptable to start with this? Okay. Great question. So the long and the short of it is no, we don't often see consignment because frankly, it is a pain in the butt right? It is a pain to pull numbers each week from that store's perspective. It's a pain to try to get the buyer to pay after things have sold. It is just, it is frustrating from an operational standpoint to do anything outside of the norm from that retail perspective, right? So I want you to think about this. Again, buyers have so many product line product lines to choose from. So when you come in and you say, yes, I want to be on your shelves, but only if you buy my fresh pressed juice juice based on consignment, 
that's one thing that makes a buyer hesitate, right? So if you can eliminate all of these things, <laughs> any possible thing that a buyer would hesitate on about your brand, like I want consignment, then you are much more likely for that buyer to say yes to that relationship. So so we don't often see consignment. We see it every once in a while, but it's really, really rare. And frankly, it's a pain in the butt. So what 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 payment terms are acceptable? With independents and smaller stores, food service, um, cafes, we often see net 15, sometimes net 30. With again, with those smaller accounts or with like cafes and food service. And then as we, you get to larger accounts, as you're working with brokers or distributors, we see net 60 or net, net 90. And again, you can negotiate this, right? So figure out what payment terms work well for your business and what you want to, where you want to lead the conversation with, right? Okay. We got one question left. Thank you for bearing with me. This is, I love, I love these rapid fire episodes. So finally, why is the buyer saying no to my product line? <laughs> I get this question. I'll tell you, I get this question weekly. So here's the deal. A buyer says no when they don't trust that you are going to bring high sales to your category. So this is a pitch problem. So something is unconvincing, right? So maybe it's your sell sheet. Maybe it's your follow-up emails. Maybe it's your mannerism on the phone. Maybe it is, truthfully, maybe it's your packaging. Maybe it's your pricing. Maybe it's your value proposition or your shelf life like we talked about. Maybe it's your, maybe it's your attitude. There are so many reasons why buyers say no, but at the end of the day, it is because they are not convinced that you are a great fit for their shelves. And I know that's tough to hear, right? Especially when it feels it feels like such an open-ended answer, right? If I'm saying, if you're sitting here listening and you're like, well, Allie, you just listed 10 things on what on why a buyer might possibly say no to about my brand. And that's where the work starts, right? That is up to you to listen to feedback, to be open to hearing why that buyer may or may not want your product line and to make changes. This this can be hard when we're so close to our brands, right? We all love our own brand, and that's a really dangerous position. So one of the things that I love doing within Retail Ready is making sure that my students understand why they're getting no's and how we can how we can turn the conversation around so they start getting yeses. Okay, so my friends, there you have it. Another rapid fire episode straight from me. Thank you for asking such great questions this time around. So you really got me thinking about on the part of continuing to do that anti-racism training and ensuring that it's not just a flash in the pan and that we move move along once the next news headline comes along. So from there, you could tell it was a pleasure and it was easy for me to talk about sell sheets and shelf lives and demos and buyer pitches, all that stuff that I really love talking about so much. So if you want to submit a question for next time, make sure that you are over in our Food Biz Whiz Facebook group where I poll my audience. Find that link in our show notes. And let's check in this week. How are how are you doing? I sincerely, I sincerely want to know. 
All right. So like I said, all of those resources that I talked about on the show today are going to be linked in our show notes, and I hope you click over and find them. From here, I'm going to be back next week in conversation with Green Spoon Sales, one of my very favorite brokers, and I hope you will tune in. Have a good one until then, and stay busy. You're listening to Food Biz Whiz, the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Allie Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going.